If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15. So good. I don't know if it's the weather or the fact that the baseball season didn't get derailed. I just feel so hopeful uh, right now in general. It feels like the Lord is really doing good things. And um, y'all, I feel like the Lord is giving us an opportunity in the middle of this Lenten season to really remember that we're, we're Easter people. We're made for resurrection. We're made for life. We're made for hope. And so I just feel, feel a sense of, of the presence and the, the kindness and the hope of God. And I'm really thankful for that. Today, we're going to read, in, in my view, the best story ever told. Um, this is Jesus' story of the parable of the prodigal son. I just think it's the truest story that, that's ever been, ever been uttered in terms of a parable. And it's uh, so significant that, that I'm not going to offer massive amounts of commentary. We're going to read it, and then we're just going to walk through it. And I want to be a, a sort of biblical tour guide to you so that you can, you can experience this story and hear what God wants you to hear. Uh, it's such an important story that we're only going to do the first bit today. Uh, and then um, on Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to record for our podcast the second part of the story uh, because it's just too much to like fly through the very end of it. So if you're interested in dying of suspense, just uh, log into the podcast or hit the podcast up or whatever it is you do with podcasts and we'll look at how the older brother responds. But today we're going to sit with the prodigal son and, and his father. So there are two things I want you to be thinking about as we get into this. Um, this story, I believe, that Jesus tells is profoundly descriptive of the human story. I believe that God is going to tell us some things today about us, and I pray that you'll be able to find yourself in the, in the younger brother, regardless of how religious you think you are or how expert you think you are. Uh, we're all meant to find ourselves in this guy, and I, and I also believe the Lord wants to tell us something about him, about the heart of our Father and the disposition of our Father. And so God and you, that's what God's going to, be, going to be speaking to us about. And I think he's going to speak to each and every one of us as we're able to hear him. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed the pigs. And he would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired Hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fattened calf and kill it. 
and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. Father, we pray for the, the ability to hear a story that many of us have heard or, or have considered uh, many times. We pray that we would hear today with fresh ears. God, we pray that we would be able to do what is tough to do, especially for those in this room who've spent time in church. We pray that we would suspend what we think we know and we would hear you speak to us just simply through the movement of the story itself. God, we thank you for story. That story is meant to invite us and form us and challenge us and teach us. It's meant to catch us off guard. It's meant to help us to see things slant, to see things in a different way. We pray that we would see something today, that we would hold and receive something that you want us to see both about us and about you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jesus loves stories. I told him all the time he was a storyteller. And we live in a world that is an information world. We live in a world where if we're not careful, we'll believe that information will change us, that if we could just learn enough of the rules or we could wrap our heads around all the techniques that we'll somehow um, be the people that we want to be. And yet I think Jesus's storytelling approach is probably still the one we need most of the time because you need to find yourself in a story. Your life is a story. Your life is unfolding. So is mine. And I believe that God wants us to see something in his heart today. So we're just going to walk through it. I'm not going to offer tons and tons of commentary here. I am going to pause at a few moments to help you understand what would have really been at play so that you get the magnitude of the story. But we're going to let Jesus essentially tell us what he wants to tell us in the Bible today. So here we go. Number one, a shocking request. At the time of Jesus, uh, a, a father like the one in this story that Jesus tells would not have made all of his money in a hurry. And he also wouldn't have had like a big fat bank account that you could just go and pull all the money out of. This guy, the father, would have accumulated wealth over generations. His wealth would have been the result of his dad's effort, his grandfather's effort, and before and before and before going back. He was a wealthy landowner in this story. Wealth like that was tied up in family property and land. He also was a respected man in the community because that kind of wealth in a small village would have made you a person of, of remarkable standing in the sense that people would have respected you and your family name. And so when the younger brother comes to him and says, I want my share of the property, and that's really important. He didn't say, I want my share of the inheritance because inheritance in the East and at the time of Jesus would have implied responsibility. It would have implied living into the family name. He just says, I want the money. It would have been a devastating request for the father. Compounded by the fact that with two boys, the oldest at the time of Jesus would have been eligible to have two thirds of dad's money and the youngest one third. So he basically says, give me my third and give it to me now. And the father, grants the request. He gives the son freedom, even freedom to hurt him, even freedom to, 
to do something painful, devastating even. And they didn't walk to the bank. The, the phrasing for gathered all he had means turned it into cash. Dad would have had to go and sell land that had been in their family for generations, probably at reactive and cut rate prices in order to give the son what he wants. So he takes the money and, and he leaves. And in the process, he guts the family. He wounds the family. He brings shame on the family. And that leads us to the second thing we see. He does that and then he leaves and he lives recklessly and he endures a remarkable amount of loss. The story tells us that he squandered the money in wild living. He basically does what most young people do if they're flush with cash and they hit the road, he goes and he seeks to make his own mark, to be his own person. Um, this guy probably was tired of living in his big brother and in his dad's um, shadow. He was thinking like, I need to make my own mark. I got to go do this thing. And he goes and he, um, he, he blows it. He just wastes the money. And wasting the money is compounded by the fact that at the, at the time in the story Jesus tells, a famine comes. And so not only does he run out of cash through just the lack of wisdom, all of a sudden everybody around him is out of cash. Uh, we're told in this story that a famine hits the land and now he's not unique in his suffering. He's now suffering alongside everyone else. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to fix the problem. He doesn't know um, where to go. And I bet you at this point in the story, what Jesus wants us to think is that they're probably in this moment of hardship, right? He goes out, he thinks, I just want to make my own mark and it doesn't go very well. And then everyone's in trouble. This is probably the first moment in the story where the idea of going home probably pops into his head or his heart. He thinks like maybe, but it's cut off and it's cut off really for two reasons. He's wounded his dad, alienated his brother, so he's got family challenges. And number two, he knows the community would be ashamed of him. And if we stop and think long enough, every one of us knows what it feels like to be ashamed, to feel like we just don't know how to move forward. We live in a, in a culture that's primarily in the West, a guilt-based culture, and guilt's very personal. Shame is very corporate. Shame is communal. Jesus lived in a shame-based culture. Many cultures in the world today are still shame-based, and it's one thing to feel bad personally. It's another thing to think, if I go back into that village, man, they're, gonna, they're not going to welcome me. And I think that that fear of what it would be like to go home, I, I've wounded my family and my community doesn't see me the way they used to see me. It keeps him in the same space. It keeps him isolated. It keeps him in a place where he is away from support and he's in a struggle. And maybe you're there. One, at one point or another in, in our lives, we all find ourselves in that place where we just think like, I don't know how to fix some stuff, but boy, do I wish I could. I don't know how to navigate this. I don't know how things are going to get better, but man, I wish it would get better. And then the guy does what everybody does. The third thing we see in this text is he attempts to solve his problem in his own strength. He, he has an idea. He thinks like, I'm out. 
I'm away from home. I can't go home. I don't know what dad would do. God knows my brother's not going to be happy with me. My community isn't going to be happy with me. So I'm going to just get a job and I'm going to figure out how to make ends meet. And this is as old a story is the human story. I mean, the first humans, when they were in the Garden of Eden and they realized that they were naked, what did they do? The first thing they did, they were like, we'll just sew some fig leaves together. Like, we'll, we'll do what we can to try to cover our own shame and our own pain. And the problem with fig leaves is just like working on the pig farm in a foreign country. It just doesn't work. And the guy's starving to death. And the saddest part of this story is that this Jewish kid is sent to go take care of pigs. And if you know anything about Jews and pigs, they, they, don't do, they don't do pig. And so this is like we're meant to hear from Jesus' own lips, like he is now at the worst place. And, and even more painful than taking care of the pigs, we're told in the text that he looks at the pods the pigs are eating and he thinks like, oh, I wish I could eat those. And you know what those pods were? They're, it's like a husk of a flower that if humans eat it, it does major devastation and destruction to their bodies. Like it ultimately would lead to their demise. And yet he's, he's drawn to this. Why? Because he's just so desperately hungry. Can you identify with being drawn to things out of desperation for comfort that you know are not good for you, but you're in such a broken space that you just don't know what else to do? pornography. It's a half a bottle of gin. It's losing the plot and watching Netflix while the whole world goes to hell in a handbasket. It's avoiding reality because reality just seems so scary. This guy is drawn to something that he knows in his own head is not good for him, but he just feels so compromised. You do all kinds of dumb stuff when you're hurting. We all do. And yet rather than just managing the thing, I believe that in this story we need to recognize that there's a reason why you're drawn to some things that are not ultimately good for you. Things that will damage and hurt and harm and yet sometimes we just don't know where else to go. This guy is drawn to the thing that would ultimately deeply injure him because he's so compromised. Is vulnerable. And that in a moment is kind of a wake-up call. It leads us to the next movement in this text. The kid comes to his senses, sort of. And, and here's how you know that you've sort of come to your senses. You start writing speeches in your head. Maybe it's sometimes with a spouse or with God. He, he, he stops and he realizes that suffering for him has become a kind of teacher and I would submit to you that suffering can be a teacher for us, that sometimes when we get in a place to where we realize that we're so upside down that we're craving and drawn to things for comfort that we know are going to do damage to our souls, only going to make it worse, he begins to recognize, like, I'm in a really bad way right now. And so he gets out his pen and his paper in the pigsty. He realizes that he's lost, and he begins to write a speech. He says this. He says in verse 18, I will set out. And I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He's like, oh, that sounds good. It's not just you. It's like bigger than you. It's, it's heaven and you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. He writes a speech. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, dad, I know I messed up, but I can at least work for you. I can work hard. I don't have your trust anymore, but I, I, can, I can work. And some of us live our whole life of faith thinking, I know I've messed up, God, but I'll just work. I'll just be as good and useful as I can. And do you know what happens when we get to those places, when we don't know what to do with all the, the pain and we don't know what to do with all the failure and we don't know what to do with the sense of shame is that we're left with this sense that we're just like a, a tool, a commodity. We're, we're someone who may pretty much suck at life, but we can at least be helpful in some areas. And that's no way to live. But he's kind of waking up. He's beginning to wonder, like, maybe dad will let me come to work on the farm. So he rehearses the speech and he heads home. And for a lot of us, that's where the story ends. That's where our, that's where, where our life story ends. We, we just think, I'm, I'm trying to get home, but I'll just find a spot on the farm. I'll, I'll just try to... I'll just try to be useful. But that's not where this story ends. This story ends with a father's love. The text tells us that while the, the boy was a long way away, the father sees him and the father is filled with compassion and the father runs toward him, he moves toward him. And here's where knowing a little bit of something about Jewish culture really helps. At, at the time of Jesus, like, Men didn't run. Um, they, they still don't really for the most part. Um, and, and they didn't run because to run was an undignified thing because you're wearing robes and you have to hike up the robes and everybody sees your, you know, your knees. And it would have been a disgrace to run. And yet what we're told in this story, Jesus appeals to custom and he basically says the father is willing to abase himself in order to pursue and be near his failed child. I'm just going to say that again. The father is willing to abase himself, to be abased in order to pursue and be near his failed son. And he falls on him, Jesus tells us. And he begins to kiss him all over, kiss him again and again and again. He, he begins to, to, to just fawn on the boy, the young man. And he, he, there's no way he, he stank. He smelled like failure. Do you know what failure smells like? A lot of you wake up with the smell of failure on you every day. You, you wake up with a failure in a relationship, a failure in your life with God, a failure in your job, a failure in what you hoped would happen that didn't happen. He woke up every morning with the smell of failure, the, the smell of shame on him. And he just wanted probably in that moment to like get clean, you know, because he wanted to present himself well. But when you don't have anything, you can't actually do the work of getting yourself all clean. So he's there in front of his dad as a, as a man who smells of failure. And his dad just wraps him up. And his dad says, best robe, let's get the best robe. Who, whose robe was the best robe? 
It was his dad. But whose robe was the best robe going to be? Big brother. Because the son had taken his third and everything else that was left was the big brother's. The son had basically taken everything that was going to be his and it was gone now. And so everything the dad got, a ring, he takes a ring. The dad, I would presume, takes a ring and pulls it off of his finger and he puts it on his son. Whose ring was that? It was dad's ring. Whose ring was that going to be? The brother's ring. We get weird and wonder why the brother was having a hard time. We're going to talk about that on the podcast. But the brother was like sitting here going like, what's going on? He put shoes on him. Do you know in the world of Jesus, slaves did not wear shoes, but free men and women wore shoes. So when he puts shoes on him, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying as he appeals to custom to us is he's not a slave. Like the dad was listening to a prepared speech. And if you notice the speech in the early part of the text, the boy only gets through half of it. Father. He's like, what are the words? Father. I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the dad doesn't even let him finish the speech. What would it be like if God was that way toward you? What would your life be like if that was God? What would it feel like to know that there was a way forward, that you didn't have to work it all out in your own strength, that you didn't have to fix things in your own power, you didn't have to relegate yourself to the back of the farm and put your head down? What would it be like to be beloved? I don't think this works if we're not aware of our belovedness. And Jesus is telling us a story for a reason. Jesus is saying, if this guy is loved, who are you to think you're not loved? If this guy is welcomed home, who are you to think that you deserve to be over there in exile or you deserve to be a worker on the back of the farm? What Jesus is trying to tell us is something about us and something about him. Dad throws a party. He welcomes him home. And I've been thinking about the fact that many of us probably in some way or another just want to be welcomed home, but we just don't know how to do it. Maybe you're here today and you're in church, but you're just like not there when it comes to knowing who you really are and how God sees you. And one of the things that I've spent the better part of my life trying to wrap my heart around is that God doesn't just love you and me because he has to. He loves us because his instinct is love. And the love deals with the pain of the isolation and the marginalization and the sin. It's not that he like waves a magic wand and says you don't have to like learn how to face the failure. He just does it with us from a place of deep belovedness and belonging. What would your life look like? If you could pay, face your own failure and your own shame and your own guilt through a lens of knowing that you are deeply, thoroughly, fundamentally beloved of God, because that's actually the truth. It's his instinct is to love you. 
everybody's happy except for the older brother and probably a few other people. Because not everybody's happy when somebody comes home. And we're going to look at that this week. It's, it's super painful. And Jesus tells the story where he doesn't actually give us, there's like an, a dot, you know, is that called an ellipsis, a dot, dot, dot at the end of the story? Like we don't actually know how the story turns out. Jesus doesn't want us to know because if we're the big brother, he wants us to have to decide how the story's going to turn out for us. And so the story ends, and we're going to look at that in the podcast this week with a father pleading with a son, and then the son has to decide. But what I want you to hear today is that God, I believe, is trying to say something to you about your life and about his heart. Let's put those three questions up. Um, today, we're going to get back to um, the post-burnout Chris reflection moment. And I want you to spend a couple of minutes. We're, going to, we're actually going to spend a few moments in silence before we come to communion considering these questions. Uh, and I would say that you're not going to finish. So if you want to take your phone out and take a picture, it's great. Um, if you have a journal or, or something, I, I would actually encourage you to bring some sort of journaling, reflecting space, whether that's like on me, for me, it's a Google Doc. It might be actually an actual like book for you or whatever it is. But this will be something I would invite you to carry into your week to begin to reflect on these three questions. So are you able to identify at all with the younger son in what ways? And there's a hint there, you are supposed to identify with this guy. <laughs> I would invite you to reflect upon a time when you experienced shame. What response did shame elicit in you? That's a really scary question, but I think it's an important one. Where have you felt shame? And what happened in you when you experienced a feeling of shame? And what would it mean for you to allow God to love you like the father in this story? Just want to be really clear that Jesus was telling a story to give us a look at his father. And this is what he told. He told a story about God that pursues us. What would your life be like if you were loved this way? We're going to take a couple of minutes and we're going to be silent, reflect before God. And I want you to just sit with these questions and then we'll come to communion together.
you're able to stand together. I want you to try this on. I've said this before and I think it's relevant, so I'm going to say it again. What would your life look like if you began to believe that you were actually lovable? And I, and I want you to hear me with this because to be lovable does not mean you're perfect. To be lovable does not mean that everybody loves you. Um, but what would it look like if you began to believe that God loves you not just because he has to, um, like we imagine in that a kind of like gritted teeth, like white knuckled dad, idiot but what would happen if that story embodied you at your very best in your own loving relationships where even when someone has disappointed you your instinct toward them is like oh but I just love them I what if that was true of you in your best moment because it's always the heart of God I believe that the Lord wants us to be the kinds of people who begin to believe in deeper places that we are actually not impossible to love, that God loves us because he made us and he sees us even when there's pig dirt on our faces. <laughs> so with that in mind, we're going to come to the communion table, pig dirt and all. We're going to ask the Lord to help us. You've probably done some silent reflection that results in some ease with regard to things you could confess. So we're going to spend a moment in silence confessing our faults before God, and then we're going to pray and read the Bible and come to communion.